I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Those are the first two verses of Psalm 9, which along with Psalm 15 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, August the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green, and so thanks for being along with me today. We're continuing our look at the book of Job, and it's, it's just one of Job's speeches in answer to his, quote, friends, and that's we're going to be today in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, and then skip forward to verses 13 to 25. In the gospel, we're in John 8 still, verses 21 to 32, and in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. I would say probably today, if you want to know kind of what we're looking at and how we're looking at Scripture today, then the first thing that I would say that today is about is examining our presuppositions. So it's important that we realize that we don't come to the table, we don't come to Scripture, we don't come to Jesus in any way as a blank slate. You know, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, there's still a lot of um, the world in us. We, we still need what I've mentioned so many times lately. It feels like that, that Paul's words are just spoken just to me, which is uh, that Romans 12 one passage where we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not conformed to the pattern of the world. And so this transformation by the renewing of the mind, the the main place that it has to get to is examining the presuppositions that we bring to the table. And so we can see it particularly today in the gospel lesson, but also in, in all these lessons, honestly, is what is our starting point for thinking about the world? And, and I know that the, the Lord's been at work in me and in Suzanne, frankly, to, to get us to see those presuppositions and, and to build a foundation for thinking about things in, in a different way, right? So when the first time or times or many times that I read the book of Job, I read it with a particular set of presuppositions in mind. And, and I was talking to Suzanne about this the other day, that the reality is, is that, that we, very few people, when they read the book of Job, particularly for the first time, side with God in any shape, form, or fashion. They come to the conclusion that God is arbitrary and mean, that, that he allows these things to happen to Job. Well, but the thing is, we don't know <laughs> what good is. We, we've, we've come to believe we do, and, and what we believe is is that if it feels good, if it, if it produces something that like a euphoric thing <laughs> in us, then, then it's good. If it produces any pain in us, then it's bad, and, and that's bad thinking. Frankly, it's just really bad thinking, and so we can come to be God's accuser when we read the book of Job, but, but what we're invited to do is enter more deeply into that story and enter more deeply into God and that he's not capricious, that he's actually doing something beneficial for Job. It's hard to see that along the way until we get to the end, and, and we can see things then with Job how he comes to see things. So here he's answering, and he says, no doubt you're the people and wisdom will die with you. I mean, sarcasm personified right there. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? In other words, the stuff that you're putting out here, the things you're saying to me, this is the most pedestrian stuff in the world. Everybody knows the things you're talking about. I'm a laughing stock to my friend. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there's contempt for misfortune. In other words, if you're in a good place, then then you are judging 
the other person who is not in a good place, where there's misfortune in people's lives, you stand in judgment of those. It's ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. In other words, they're, they're, these people, as long as you've got it good right now, then you sit in judgment on everybody else. And, and no matter how you got to be in a place that's good, even if it's robbery, he goes on to say, though, he's speaking now of God. This is his presupposition. He's beginning to think correctly, and he needs to state these things. It's important that we begin to think with Job here. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So, in other words, he, what he's saying is, is that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's, his wisdom is with him. And he's omnipotent. He has power, all power. And so he has wisdom and might. He's omniscient and he's omnipotent. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. So he's, he's expounding a little bit on what it means to be omniscient and omnipotent. So he has counsel and understanding. That has to do with his knowledge, his omniscience. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. He, he's, he is omnipotent. In other words, there's no power that can overcome him. Whatever he does is a final word on things. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, stripped and judges he makes fools. And again, he's, he's piling up. What he's saying is, is that God is wiser than anybody. You can't, you can't name somebody who can hold their own with him. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away, stripped, and overthrows the mighty. I mean, he can take down anybody that he wants. He can raise up anybody that he wants. There's, there's nobody with the power that God has. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Those are, those are contrasts. He enlarges nations and leads them away. That leads them away would be into exile. So he makes your borders larger, and then he removes your borders by, by taking away your autonomy and, and now puts you under the thumb of another. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. And so it's important for us to be able to see these things and to be able to understand with Job, this is who God is. And so he can be all these things, right? I mean, he can be omnipotent. He can be omniscient. He can be omnipresent. That means he can be everywhere at all times. He can have all those attributes. And yet at the bottom of it all, right at the beginning, the foundation is not just God is great, because those, those things all describe the greatness of God. But but you can't ever lose sight of the goodness of God. And if he's good, then you begin to see the things that he does in a different way. If you're his, right? I mean, that, that, that's the big thing is, is that if we are in him, then, then we can know that all things are working together for good. And that's how Paul can stand up under immense uh, and intense persecution is because he knows the goodness of God, and he knows the sovereignty of God. And those two things coexist. And, and you don't want a God who is only sovereign. You don't want a God who is only righteous. You want a God who is 
good and merciful. That's the kind of God we actually need. Because we don't need just a God who is powerful and righteous, because then he's just a God of judgment. But if he's also good and merciful, then, then there's a place for us in his kingdom. And we can begin to understand the world around us and the things that happen to us in very different ways. We can look for how these things are good because we know they are. And that's really important. It's a huge shift in thinking that we have to make. And it's not easy to do. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not an easy thing. It's, it, it requires you typically to have gone through a lot of difficulty because then you can appreciate the good and you can see the good a little more clearly. In the gospel today, we see how people's presuppositions keep them from understanding what it is that Jesus is saying and the truth that he's presenting to them. So he said to them again, this is just a group of people. I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they've already come to this one conclusion, which is, is he going to go away somewhere into the diaspora and he's going to preach to like the people out there? Is that what he means when he says, I'm going away and you can't find me there? You won't find me or whatever. And here he says, you, you will die in your sin. You'll seek me and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So they're they're forming these opinions in spite of the fact that he's given them all the information they need about where he comes from. And now he's going to keep going and he's going to explain it a little more clearly. He said to them, you're from below. I'm from above. I don't care how you parse that sentence. If, if you say, you know, he, he's saying he's coming from heaven. Now, where does he say they're coming from? Well, that that one here, you're from below could mean a couple of different things. It depends on your starting point, right? Is the starting point earth or is the starting point heaven? And so when he says you're from below and I'm from above, then he goes on to define it a little more clearly. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. And what is it that I just started this thing with? with that? And that was we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. Okay. So what it's saying is, is that we are of the world until the renewing of our minds. And then becomes the transformation, not the confirmation. So he, he's, he's very clear, you're of this world, and who is the ruler of this world? So what we have to do is allow him to, to reshape the way we think, and it begins with thinking about him in a different way. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the transformation begins with the renewing of the mind, which begins with believing that Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the incarnate Son of God, one being with the Father, who came for one reason, and that's the, the ministry and work of salvation through the cross. And so if we believe those things, then we believe differently about everything in the world. We believe in God's goodness because he's shown it to us. We believe in God's mercy because he's shown it to us. We believe that God truly loves us because he sent his son to die for our sins on the cross. So it's all a matter of what is good, what is good, what is good, what is good. Good Friday is only good because of Easter Sunday. Otherwise, it's just the greatest tragedy that's ever happened. So they said to him, who are you? Well, they've known who he was. They've said who he is. Well, you're the son of Mary and Joseph. You're, the, you're this guy from Nazareth, from Galilee. We know who you are. 
but now they're having to ask, who are you? Jesus said to him, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. So just what I've been telling you from the beginning. So what have you been telling us from the beginning? I mean, he's the son of man. And he's clear about his identity. And that's the reason that we see Satan presuming or asking him to question his identity in the, in the temptations that are posed in the beginning of the ministry after his baptism. If you're the son of God, then do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, then isn't this true? Because it's biblical that he will protect you from these things. And he's asked to, to, to question his identity, and then he's asked to presume on his identity. If you're the Son of God, then throw yourself down, because God's you know, obligated to protect you. He said it in Scripture. Go ahead. Do it. So, so first, it's to question his identity, and second, it's to presume on his identity. And then it's to renounce his identity which is to fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. So first, it's presumption. Second, uh, not presumption, sorry, questioning. Second, it's presuming on his identity. And third, it's renouncing his identity. And so here they're asking, who are you? And he says, just who I've been saying I was from the beginning. I have a lot to say, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. So he's, if the one who sent him is true, then what's he declaring to the world? He's declaring truth to the world. They didn't understand what he meant by speaking to them about the Father. And so the question here is, is they don't know who the Father is. And if they don't know who the Father is, they don't know who the Son is. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing by my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So people began to see through the facade. They began to see through the things that they knew to let go of their presuppositions about who he was. And they began to hear the message and to receive the message as true in spite of what they knew. So it's important for that. And, and here, when he talks about lifting up the Son of Man, remember, that's, that's a reference back to when he spoke to Nicodemus and said the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in a wilderness in order for salvation and healing and life to come. And so here, that's exactly what he's talking about. <clears throat> he says, when you've lifted him up, then you will know that I am he. Now, did they know at the lifting up putting him on the cross, or did they know at the resurrection? Or did they know at the day of Pentecost? But it, it all begins with the lifting up on the cross. And, and then through the resurrection, through the ascension, and then through what we know to be the coming again. So it's, it's that process which begins with lifting up and ends at eternity is when you know and when you can believe. And so Jesus said to the disciples who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so that's what we need is to be able to to be set free, to be set free from sin, to be set free from the fear of death, and, and then to be set free from the world systems, to see it for what it is, which is a, a good creation of God that's gone astray and that's fallen. And we begin to see the fallenness 
And that's when we begin to live into the Beatitudes. As our eyes are opening, opening to the suffering around us, to the sin around us, and to the pain around us. To see the captivity of mankind and to see the captivity of the earth because of the sins of humankind. And then we begin to, to identify with God and to see with his eyes, the eyes that, that wept at the tomb of Lazarus because of the grief brought upon by death in this world. And, and then we begin to be changed. And we begin to see not only our suffering, but the suffering all around us in a different way. In the, uh, in the passage from Acts, uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's from Acts 8 after he was stoned, um, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, so these deacons and the others who have fled from Jerusalem after the persecution breaks out go as far as Antioch, which is 300 miles north in Turkey. So they go that far, but they're only proclaiming to the Jews. People are still not seeing the point of proclaiming this to the Gentiles, even though we've already got some experience in chapter 10 with Cornelius, and then Peter's witnessing about that when he comes back to Jerusalem. So they know there's a receptiveness among the Gentiles and that God's moving among the Gentiles, but these people are more comfortable still in their Jewish identity, and therefore they're not comfortable taking that next step of going to the Gentiles because they're still wrapped up in a Jewish identity that sees the Gentiles as those people that you avoid, those people who will make you ritually unclean. So they're just going to people like them. They're still seeing the world in these two categories. It's a binary. It's a Jew or it's not a Jew. It's a Jew or a Gentile, period, end of sentence. That's all you got. And I'm more comfortable believing that God declares these people unclean, which is a bizarre idea because God never did that. But, but it's easier for me to go and speak to Jews because I don't have to do all that presuppositional work, but, they, but you do. Because the presupposition is Jesus is not the Messiah because he died on a cross. And so there's that still that has to be overcome, that belief that one who dies on a cross on a tree is cursed and that Messiah is not going to die. Well, he didn't in some ways. He, he experienced death, but he didn't, quote, die in the sense that, that he continued to exist. The resurrection says that, that, that he, he experienced this earthly death, but not the second death. So, that, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, so not people from Jerusalem, people from up in that area. Cyrene is Libya, so we're talking about right at the, at the end of northern Africa. So those people who come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus because they were more comfortable with them. They were, they were more um, familiar with Gentiles, and they were more familiar with the Gentile belief system because they didn't live in the heart of Judaism. They lived outside of that, and so they had more contact with, didn't have any way to avoid the, the Gentile uh, Greco-Roman world, and so they were more capable of speaking into it, more comfortable speaking into it, because they had more familiarity with it. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, that that's the apostles, because they're the ones who didn't flee, didn't go outside of Jerusalem after that persecution. So they sent Barnabas. Remember, we met Barnabas way back in, in Acts um, 3, I think it was, so, or two or three, I can't remember which. Anyway, they, they, we meet him as the one who sells some property and brings it 
to the, the, the proceeds to the disciples and said, here, take it all. Just distribute it however you wish. And so Barnabas means the man of encouragement. And so they bring him, they send Barnabas to Antioch. He's deputized to go by the apostles, and he goes there. He came and saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Which is exactly the same thing that, that we're told about Stephen. So that, that's who Barnabas is. He's a good man, full of the Spirit and, and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we've already got a great number who believed that turned to the Lord in Antioch. And now great many people were added to the Lord. So it, it continued to increase. In the same way, we see the church in Jerusalem increasing in early days. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember, Saul had gone to Tarsus because they said, you've got to get out of Jerusalem because it's too hot here because the Jews want to kill you. And they, they wanted to kill him in um in Jerusalem, but before that they wanted to kill him in Damascus, and, and now he's gone to Tarsus, which seems to be home base. So Barnabas goes to look for Saul. Remember, Barnabas is the one who vouched for him and brought him into Jerusalem and said, no, 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 y'all don't have to worry about him. He's genuine article. And so now he goes and gets him, and, and so he had seen Paul's ability to reason, and he had seen Paul's ability to make the Scriptures true and alive. So he brought him when he found him, to Antioch for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's the first time they had a name. They were just a Jewish sect, a messianic, um, a bunch of messianic Jews, but now they needed a different way to dif- distinguish themselves and differentiate themselves in Antioch because they weren't considered Jews there. They were considered this other thing, and so they began to be called Christians, those who took the name of Christ. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there'd be a great famine all over the world. Now, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what they've done here at the end of this year that they spend with them instructing them, building them up in the faith, is, is that now a prophet comes and says there's going to be this worldwide famine, and these people who, who were reasonably wealthy in this place decided we're going to send help to our brothers in Jerusalem. And so they, they these Christians, were looking at these other believers who didn't see them in the same way that they saw these brothers. And they're going to provide for them. So, so one of the ways in which they're going to not ingratiate themselves, but, but to, to show them that they considered themselves brothers with these Jewish believers in Jerusalem is they're going to provide for them. And it's important for us as Christians to always be looking outward and, and to expand the idea of brotherhood. And so to me, it's incumbent on us to always be looking to mission fields, to be able to, to to connect with other believers wherever those other believers may be, and to show our concern for them by reaching out and providing for the needs that we are able to provide for for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in who are suffering in other places. But our presupposition has to begin with who is Jesus, and it begins with God. It begins with seeing him as not only great, but also good. And then we begin to see the world differently around us. We begin to see our suffering differently as well. It's a powerful move of the Spirit to be able to move from the understanding that God is just great to the understanding that God is good. And then you begin to search for what's the true meaning of the, the painful things that are happening in my life.